Hi, I'm Eric Kaplan. And I'm Taylor Carmen. I'm a Hollywood TV writer with a PhD in philosophy. And I'm a philosophy professor at Barnard College, Columbia University. And you are listening to Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, the philosophy podcast that asks a different terrifying question each week and shows us how to be courageous in the face of them using philosophy. And today, our question is, do we live in a simulation? Yeah, I've heard that from people on the internet who aren't even philosophers. And I've heard people say, science teaches us that probably we live in a simulation, which means something like we are brains in a vat being electronically stimulated by uh, aliens or robots <laughs> yeah. from the future, um, which I, I think is, um, it's a terrifying notion. I mean, like at any point they could just, they could just throw me in the toilet, right? <laughs> right? I, I think I'm safe, but I'm not because I'm just a, a, a helpless brain that could be thrown in the toilet by an alien monster. So it's genuinely terrifying. So I'm very hopeful. Uh, I think some of our um, listeners may in fact be terrified by that, yeah. or at least think that maybe they should be terrified by it. Yeah. So I don't know, can philosophy help us? Do we live in a simulation? Well, it's scary to think somebody could just hit the delete button and poof, they were gone. Yeah. This is so pervasive in the culture now, I think, especially after The Matrix. When did The Matrix come out? 20 years ago or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I don't know. It came out in the 90s. It was pervasive in the culture. Yeah, and, it's all and over. And people are, are nervous. Uh, Elon Musk bought Twitter but says he thinks we're in a simulation. Yeah. So I don't know if he thinks he bought Twitter or he just thinks he's having the experience of buying well, Twitter. I don't know. that raises the question we're going to get around to, like what difference can it make whether it's true or not? I mean, it's uh -huh. true that if you think somebody's got their finger on the delete button, that's pretty scary. But you don't have to believe we're in a simulation to think that everything might end right away. Like, a, you know, what was it? A meteor just passed the Earth just the other day, like only a couple of thousand miles away from the Earth. It was small enough that it wouldn't have really done any damage, but it could have been big. Anyway, things can blow up immediately. So, But it seems like a very new idea because of computer mm -hmm. technology and the films and all this as if this is just first time anybody ever, this ever occurred to anybody. But this problem or this worry is at least 400 years old. Now, do you think there's any possibility a caveman worried about this and we just don't know it? Because he didn't have written language. <laughs> I So here's what I think. I think it's very possible that the caveman, Neanderthal, whoever, might have worried about everything disappearing suddenly uh -huh. because of some uh -huh. cataclysmic event. I don't think it was possible that they could have had quite the simulation idea. And in fact, I think it wasn't really until 400 years ago with Descartes that this version of the worry has arisen. Like everything in my mind could be just as it is, but everything outside my mind could be completely different or non-existent. Okay. I think that's a very new idea. When I say new, I mean 400 years old rather than 20 years or 30 years old. So, but, so yeah. Descartes, he's familiar to me for having figured out that you can take a piece of paper and put numbers on it in a grid yeah. and you can have uh, an ordered pair of numbers to all the points on the grid and therefore you can do algebraic equations by drawing them. Is this the same Descartes? That's the same Descartes. He invented analytical geometry. That's right. So the algebraic Not too um, shabby. formulation of uh, of a figure yeah, that was a big breakthrough. So he was a real mathematical okay. genius. And he was yeah. uh, French? He was. René. Okay. René Descartes. René Descartes. Okay. And, all right, so, and he was, what, in the years, in the 1600s? Early 1600s. He was okay. born in the 1590s, I think, and died in 1650-ish or something like okay. that. Okay, so yeah. Europe, Europe is just starting to, like, kick ass and take names and conquer the whole planet. And he's there, and he's inventing the Cartesian plane, yeah. and he's also inventing global skepticism. Is that right? Pretty much. I mean, so there was an ancient tradition of skepticism. He didn't. He didn't really invent skepticism. He well, was, tell us what he tell us what he brought to yeah, the table. Yeah. So, so and later on, we'll talk about ancient traditions. He of skepticism. was living in a time about a century before him. People started rediscovering skepticism, ancient skepticism, and so he was using it like a lot of people were for his own purposes. Mm -hmm. But he used skeptical arguments. Skeptical arguments are supposed to show you that you don't think, sorry, you don't know what you think you know. Uh -huh. And he used that at the beginning of this famous text called Meditations on First Philosophy in order to show that you really could know something and here's how you do it. But his version of the skeptical arguments was really radical. It was really that everything in your subjective conscious experience could be exactly the same as it is right now. And yet the world could be completely different from what you think it is. 
or there might not even be a so-called external world at all. And that distinction between what's internal to the mind and the immediate objects of awareness and everything outside, that was a new thing. And I don't want to say he completely single-handedly invented it, because nobody quite does that, but it was a new idea. Uh, I've heard philosophers suggest that before Descartes, nobody had ever really made the internal contents of the mind objects of knowledge or inquiry. It's like it was always okay. kind of transparent. It's what you look through to see the world. But he really thought that could be your whole world. Okay. It's just your immediate experience. So now let's yeah. stop talking about it and, yeah. and or let's stop talking about the fact that people believe it and actually talk about it. Yeah. So here's the, the worry is, I think I'm sitting here uh, leaning against my desk, but really there's no desk. Yeah. There's just electrochemical events in my brain that feel like they're experiences of a desk, but there is no desk. Is that is that the worry? Pretty close. I mean, for Descartes, the question was whether there's even a brain, because that's a physical object. and Maybe there's no brain. Maybe there's no brain. You don't know from your immediate experience that you have a brain. No, I don't. I don't. The brain is in an organ inside your skull, and you've probably never seen it. I have never looked inside my skull, yeah. even with the aid of a mirror. So the brain in a vat is a familiar version of this, and I think that was introduced by um, Gilbert Harmon. Gilbert and, Harmon. I think so, and Hilary Putnam talks about it. Hillary but Putnam. that's just the modern, scientific-sounding, science fiction-y kind of sounding version of the Cartesian skepticism. Well, don't say just, because I think a lot of our listeners will be like, great, it's scientific, all the more reason to believe it. Yeah, right. But it was I think it was invented just as almost a comic book intuition sort of illustration of the idea. But right. for all you know, you could be just a brain in a vat. I could be just a brain in a vat. Mad scientist is um, putting signals into your brain so that you think you're surfing. Mad scientist or, or a sane scientist yeah. or a scientist who's slightly neurotic. <laughs> Giving slightly you neurotic. the experience of surfing in Hawaii and uh, enjoying the sunshine. But there you are in a basement laboratory all right. with the wires stuck in your brain. Right. Where I I'm, I'm having the experience of sitting at my desk doing a podcast with Taylor, but I'm really in some messed up yeah. alien's broom closet as he prepares for his science, his alien science fair. Okay, well, that's terrifying because um, all the people who I think I love and care about don't exist. Maybe. Like, I think after I'm done with this podcast, I'm, I'm going to go for a walk, but I'm not. That is terrifying. So we claimed in the intro to this podcast that we're going to use philosophy to make it less terrifying. <laughs> Go. Okay. How do, is there any reason to believe this ain't true? Uh, well, I think so. Okay. Yeah, so what? the challenge is, I mean, when you first present this to people, unless they're already deep into the sort of matrix kind of stuff and are really, uh, really sort of on their way to this kind of skepticism, of course, at first blush, they'll say, yep, yeah, right, yeah. They, like, they feel like they've got no reason to believe at all. And frankly, I think what's interesting about the problem is that we we don't really intuitively take it very seriously. Mm -hmm. I, once we start thinking about it, we start thinking maybe we ought to, and maybe we have no reason to be confident that it's not true, and that's when the wheels start rolling. And by the way, just, just for the folks playing along at home, the label for this problem in philosophy is skepticism. That's right. If you wanted to look it up on Wikipedia or you wanted to go to a philosophy class and said, I'm interested to think about this some more. What you're interested in is the problem of skepticism, right? But let's say philosophical skepticism. Philosophical because, skepticism. Because the, wor the word skepticism is also used in lots of other ways. Like uh -huh. There's climate skeptics and there's people call themselves skeptics when they think they're being very critical and they've got very high standards. And it's often an excuse for believing conspiracy theories. This is philosophical skepticism. A skeptic is someone who doesn't believe something that most people believe. And in this case, yeah. most people believe there's a world with, and they have bodies and there's a street outside. And the skeptic is like, not so fast. How do you know? Is that fair? <laughs> That's fair. But again, there's people who are skeptics about all kinds of banal things. And it turns out they believe all kinds of other stuff perfectly easily. And philosophical skepticism is like this total sort of doubt, like all the basic things, like you have a body, there's a world, there's an earth, uh -huh. time is real, all that stuff. Maybe you don't have any reason to believe any of that. You don't know that. Right. You think you although do. the so um, global and total. Although yeah. the we live in a simulation skeptic is sort of, um, those people think they are advancing a reasonable scientific theory not a yeah. philosophical worry because they believe there's <laughs> yeah. a universe. Yeah. They just think our yeah. beliefs about the universe are probably all wrong, right? But if, well, right. But there's a very thin line 
all skeptics have to traverse or balance on between total consistent skepticism which is what the ancient Pyrrhonism, it's called, mm -hmm. Pyrrhonian skepticism, was very consistent because the Pyrrhonians said, we can't know anything and we can't even know that. All right. The academic skeptics who were following after Plato in the Plato's Academy were sometimes called the dogmatic skeptics because they claim to know that we can't know anything. Right. And it's fair to ask them, how do you know that? How do you and know so that? And so I think sometimes the simulation proponents, maybe Elon Musk and people who say this kind of thing, are kind of more like dogmatic skeptics because they think they know that we don't know. Yeah. By the way, I feel that the we're probably in a simulation. I got in an argument on Twitter with uh, David Chalmers, the philosopher, mm. about the probably... Because yeah. the probably annoys me yeah. because I feel that uh, there's an uncountably many possible things that you can come up with to put in the denominator. So therefore, there's no way to say we're probably in a simulation because it strikes me maybe everything is being simulated except for my left arm. <laughs> That's a possibility. Right. I... Maybe everything is being simulated except for my right arm. Yeah. That's a possibility. Maybe it's all real except for, um, you know, the state of Vermont. And the state of Vermont is simply a, a CIA psyop that yeah. everything you've, everybody you've ever spoken to who claims to be from Vermont is a paid actor. Uh, ditto for, uh, you know, South Dakota. Yeah, you know, so I feel that there's no way to yeah. once we open up the door to our experience would be exactly the same if this weird scenario were the case, we can generate uncountably infinite scenarios and therefore we're not allowed to say probably we're in a simulation. So so I, I don't yeah. know, for, for whatever reason, that rubs me the wrong me way. Too. I mean, part of it, I think it rubs me the wrong way is I think. um and we can talk about this later because it's a little bit of a digression. But I think if you think about people who really ought to have been skeptics, like maybe my mom ought to have been a skeptic, mm. like because she should have been a skeptic about the notion that she should spend her time making her husband happy rather mm -hmm. than making herself happy. Ah. And then if she doesn't, she's a bad person. Yeah. So I feel like that's an interesting form of worry that we might be in such bad faith or be so deluded by what our society tells us that we're living our lives completely wrong. And I feel like all this sort of nerd speak about we're probably in a simulation yeah. takes what's a potentially interesting topic and turns it into kind of this nerd debate. I agree, um, yeah. Um, yeah, but before I, I say like kind of my emotional response <laughs> yeah, to this, yeah. I want to talk about the intellectual Good. Uh, basis. Uh, yep. But first, we're going to take a little break. Well, that was a great break. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're talking about skepticism, and particularly, is there a philosophical response to the worry that I could be having all the experiences I'm currently having, but the world could be radically different, and therefore, I don't know anything? I agree with you that there's something really wrong with that claim, and part of what's wrong with it is what was wrong with dogmatic skepticism since antiquity, which is, how do they claim to know the probability <laughs> of this, frankly, crazy, or at least crazy-sounding hypothesis. I think they must think they know a lot about how the mind works and the way we perceive the world and how we form beliefs to think uh, that there's any chance at all, let alone a probability, a high probability, <laughs> that we've got all this stuff going on, as it were, in our minds, and it could be radically different from the way we suppose the world to be. I don't see how they can possibly claim to know any of that, except that their view rests on what I think is an extremely implausible view about what experience and consciousness and beliefs are. I just don't think they're right. in our heads in let's, the way. Let's get to that in a second, but yeah. I do want to make the joke that they might as well think that we are feet in a vet <laughs> because they've got no way of knowing that well, the brain is thinking because sure, exactly. they don't think any of the experiments actually happen. Well, there's a guy. So, there's a guy. So that the aliens could have made us think that our brains are thinking, but our brains don't do the thinking. All the experiments anyone think they've done in neuroscience were illusions. Yeah. And really, the human thought is done by our feet. So not we're not only aren't we brains in a vat, we're feats in a vat. 
or feet. Yeah, feet in a vest. There's somebody I don't maybe want to name names if since I might not get the position exactly. You might meet right. them at a party. I might meet also, them at a party yeah. and I might misrepresent them some subtle yes. way. But there are, let's say, there are people who really claim to be sure, not just that there's a probability, but it's like virtually certain in their minds that we're living in something like a simulation or that it's our own minds that are creating the reality we're in. And this is all based uh-huh. on the way they think they understand the way the brain works. And then I want to ask them, how do you know how the brain works? <laughs> I mean, you've learned that from a whole tradition of scientific inquiry and neuroscientific discovery and empirical knowledge. I mean, you take everything like that for granted that you've got all that right and then say yeah. everything's being created by us in the minds. Well, everything except the yeah, brain yeah, yeah. and the skull and the, you know, I mean, so it's totally self-defeating. I've heard that. I've heard people say, you know that reality is just an illusion your brain is telling <laughs> Except you. Except for the brain. <laughs> I've heard that. I've heard people say that with a complete it's straight a remarkable. face. remarkable. Yeah. And it's sort of like, well, yeah, what if it's an illusion my foot is telling my other foot? You know, we don't, we don't know anything. Exactly. And um, so everything, okay. is, everything is an illusion except brain science, apparently. So that Correct. can't be right. So, by the way, it almost seems to me that among the salutary services that we're supplying yeah. to the globe <laughs> by doing this podcast yeah. is that there's there's people who are kind of running around making other people feel bad, claiming that they know things. <laughs> and we're at least revealing that they don't uh, know yeah. it. So if you yeah. choose to feel bad, far be it from us to stop you. But you don't have to because... <laughs> your life is an illusion being told you by your brain. It's not true. Uh, There's no reason to think it's true. Go ahead and feel bad. Who stops you? But it's not an illusion being told you by your brain. There's no reason to think that. That's certainly not. And uh, But I think our mission has two prongs. That's one prong. Yes. Keep people from feeling bad for no reason. I think a lot of people just enjoy this topic and they're actually having fun with it and it makes them feel good because it's exciting. It's like watching The Matrix. It's sort of cool and it's interesting. And frankly, I'm interested in throwing some water on the fun too because actually i think make them don't yeah don't have so much fun. <laughs> exactly um, because i mean oh, or it could like, be bad fun yeah it's it right could be i mean bad look fun. have fun if you want but keep in mind you know the limits of this idea and don't take it too seriously there are good reasons not to take it very seriously or as seriously as people often take it so there's the brain version which is really obviously self-defeating because apparently oh, you have but to before you go on i yeah. i, I want to yeah. i want to say a super judgy thing yeah, okay. <laughs> just because i i've never had the opportunity yeah. to And I think it's a kind of a snobby form of fun. Yes. Because what you're basically saying is, I'm worried about this very snobby issue that's really deep and nobody else understands it. So it's like, Mom, stop stop (laughs) telling me to clean up my room because the world might be an illusion and you don't understand that. It's like, I don't think the world's an illusion. Well, that's because you're dumb, Mom. So this is my my judgy and unsympathetic portrait of this way of approaching life. Okay. That, that's the yeah. insult portion of the yeah. podcast. Yeah. But let's do the philosophy good, portion good, of good. the podcast. Okay. okay. Why do we think... So I'm eating a ham sandwich. Yeah. And Descartes says, aha, you could be having the experience of eating a ham sandwich, right. even if there's no ham sandwich. Therefore, you don't know that you're eating a ham sandwich. How do you respond to that as a philosopher, Taylor So Carmen? I think, I mean, putting the brain version of this aside, which is obviously self-defeating, you know, the Cartesian version yes. is more consistent. Like, you don't even know there's a brain. There's just consciousness. Maybe there's just your consciousness, and that is it, for all you know. That's at least more consistent. But I think the problem with that is uh, everything we say about consciousness, experience, makes reference to the world. There's no way to get a grip on consciousness just by itself. Because when you say ham sandwich, I know what you're talking about, because I know what a ham sandwich is. So I think there's just no way to get this conversation even off the ground. Right. In a world where there are no pigs, yeah. <laughs> no one could have the experience of eating a ham sandwich, right? <laughs> well, it wouldn't be a ham sandwich. Yeah, that's right. It wouldn't right. be. So, but even to say like sensation of red, I have to already know what it is for something to be red in order to know what it would be for me to be seeing something that I think looks red. I don't even know what red yeah. means unless you can point to something red and say, that's red. And I say, aha, okay. So I think reference to the world is more basic than reference to experience consciousness. All this talk about the mind and what's internal is, as many people have put it, parasitic on talk about the world. And I think everybody is committed to talk about the way the world really is. There's a kind of what's sometimes called naive realism that underlies the whole discussion. And I think when people claim not to be committed to that, they're pretending. I think they're faking it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to I'm going to feed that back to you and you tell me if I got it yeah. right. 
there's a mosquito and it desires blood. Mm -hmm. And why do we say it desires blood? Well, we look at certain things in the mosquito's brain that cause it to seek blood. And we only get to say the mosquito has beliefs because we know a lot about the world that the mosquito, and this, I don't know why I said beliefs, desires, yeah, but whatever. it's got beliefs yeah. too. There's some <laughs> blood over there and I want to drink it. Yeah. We only get to talk about the consciousness of the mosquito because we know a whole hell of a lot about the world that the mosquito is in. Yeah. So therefore, we are never in a situation where we understand an organism's beliefs and we don't know anything about the world or environment of that organism because we only get to know anything about its beliefs because we know the world that it's a part of. Yeah. Is that fair? I, well, it's on the right track. Okay. I mean, if you're going to ascribe beliefs to mosquitoes at all, okay. maybe they're mosquitoes or something instead of beliefs. Mesquifes, but yeah. even in our case, we ascribe beliefs to ourselves and each other by seeing our actions, our behaviors. And it's something we're ascribing to other people as much as ourselves. It's got a third person as well as the first person aspect. And think of it this way. It's a very weird way to talk to say a mind has a belief. Maybe mosquitoes do and maybe they don't, but people have beliefs. And so it's persons that are the bearers of belief states and conscious states. You already have to know what a person is, I think, before you start talking about mental states, beliefs, attitudes, desires, and so on, and then say those are mental. That's all a highly refined version or variation on something we know from the age of two or three or whenever we start talking that mom believes or desires something. In fact, three-year-olds aren't even very good at doing this. They're still developing the ability to ascribe beliefs to themselves and each other. But it's persons who are the bearers of beliefs. And once you realize that when you talk about persons, you're talking about embodied, acting people with heads and mouths and usually arms and legs and stuff like that, you're already committed to the external world that skeptics are pretending not to believe in or to doubt. So right. I think skepticism is a it's a kind of fake because, as Hume said, Hume, the Scottish 18th century philosopher, was he was a skeptic, but he said he thought skepticism was only really possible to entertain in this moment of kind of abstract reflection. And as soon as you go play backgammon with your friends, he said, you'll immediately believe all the things you were not believing in your purely theoretical attitude. So nobody can really be a skeptic. Nobody can really put skepticism into action in their practical beliefs. And actually, I think he was understating the worry there. I think there's something wrong with skepticism precisely because you can't be a skeptic without being literally insane. Well, okay. I like all that, and I think that's good. And by the way, just for, again, for the folks playing at home who'd like to learn more, what we're talking about is a dispute about internalism versus externalism. There you go. The internalist thinks what your beliefs are, what your mental states are, is internal to your, it's inside your head yeah. or inside your mind. And the externalist says, no, 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 you don't know what's in your head unless you know a whole lot about the world. And by the way, in a move that I think we're going to do a lot, one of the ways in which we deal with the terrifying question that we don't know about the world is to raise an equally terrifying question that we don't even know about our minds. Yeah, <laughs> so, right. So it's a little bit of a <laughs> yeah. strange trade. When I first started studying this, like I went into philosophy grad school as an internalist, and I kind of doubted, I came to doubt my internalism. Mm. But there was a time when I was really resisting it because I was like, you're taking away skepticism, which I like because it's unsettling, mm. but you're giving me an even greater worry, which is I don't even know myself. Yeah. And I kind of want to know myself. Yeah. Like if I if I need to do research to know what's in my own mind, that seems maybe very upsetting. Yeah. Right. But there's all kinds of ways in which we've become more skeptical in a healthy way, a healthy skepticism about our knowledge of our own minds, thanks to Freud, but also neuroscience. And there's all kinds of stuff going on in what we call our minds that I think we only have a partial or imperfect grip on. And maybe there's stuff going on in our minds I think it's very likely that we're completely unaware of. Right. See, notice that once you've regained the world, thanks to some kind of externalism, you realize that the mind is not this self-contained, isolated thing inside you, but that you're always out in the world, mm -hmm. uh, you realize that your own mind is as complex and sometimes opaque as all the rest of the world is. That's very unsettling. We should do another episode on that. We should. Do I know myself? Yeah, right. Good. Exactly. Um, do I know myself? Yeah. Okay. I think internalism makes it look too easy to know yourself. It's not that easy. Interesting. See, yeah. skeptics, I think, are often overly confident 
about how we use the word know. So they can say, we don't know this, or we do know that. Or like Descartes said, I know that I think, therefore I exist. Cogito ergo sum. He knew that. Maybe he doesn't know anything else. Notice that you learn how to use the word know, thanks to your interaction with other people. When you acquire language, you start learning to say, I know this, I don't know that. So even your grip on the concept of knowledge is already socially constituted by your relationships with other people and your participation in a language. So even to invoke the word know, so you can ask questions like, what do I know? Do I know this? Do I know that? You're already involved in and committed to a linguistic community of yeah, language users who use that word in a certain way. When I say I've got a sensation, how do I know it's a sensation? I mean, there's there's a normal way of using the word sensation, and I'm participating in that, but maybe I've got it wrong. Okay, so that is all terrific. And yet, um, take our mosquito yeah. who seeks blood. Yeah. We could imagine that a scientist has created a substance that lures mosquitoes in by tricking them into thinking it's blood even though it isn't. Yeah. It's poison. Yeah. So the mosquito ought to be a skeptic. Yeah. Because it's it thinks it's in a world full of blood. Yeah. It's actually in a lab. It's never encountered any blood. All it's encountered is this weird poison that they're trying to develop in order to kill mosquitoes. And by the way, I'm kind of on the side of the lab in this case because yeah. I don't like mosquitoes or the diseases <laughs> they spread. But but let's let's be dispassionate about this and be like yeah. the mosquito thinks it's in a world of blood. But it isn't. It's in a world of this fake stuff. Yeah. Um, couldn't we be like the mosquito? Sure. So where, what's this externalism doing? Like if this mosquito was an externalist, <laughs> it, he would be wrong because he'd be like, well, clearly my desire for blood is a desire for this thing here. And that's blood. But it's not blood. It's it's some poison that was created by the lab. But there's still poison. There's still something out there. Uh-huh. The mosquito example is a little tricky because it is. what do mosquitoes really believe or know? Maybe hardly anything. And maybe, maybe they've got one or two beliefs. And if those are extinguished, then they don't believe anything. We We've got a very mm -hmm. complex, rich sort of set of beliefs. But here's the thing. I think there is this perfectly healthy and scary skepticism. Again, maybe another episode for us. Like people used to think the earth was stationary. They used to think the world was full of gods and divinities and that thunder meant anger of the gods. And they used to think that everything had existed eternally and there was no change. And they didn't think that we were evolved like other animals. I mean, there's been all kinds of massive experiences of disillusionment like the mosquitoes for human beings just over the last few thousand years. So there's a lot of that belief change and, you know, the floor dropping out from under us in our belief systems uh, that has happened. That's a real thing. So I think we want to take all that very seriously. Yeah. Short of going over the cliff of philosophical skepticism. And that's what yeah. puzzles me. Yeah. By the way, my teacher in grad school at Berkeley was a very, a very famous smart philosopher named Donald Davidson. Mm -hmm. And he launched arguments against internalism sort of in the spirit of that mosquito thing, although he would not have believed that mosquitoes have beliefs. But that's, I think, that's right. not terribly important yeah, yeah, for this yeah, case. That's right. um, but he did have to believe that most of our beliefs are true. Yep. And that really bugged me because I'm like, most of our beliefs are true, Professor Davidson. I mean, I, I feel like a Davidsonian in like the 15th century would end up burning witches because most of his beliefs are true. <laughs> and uh, there must be witches. I mean, and I don't know how you quantify most. Well, that's the whatever. tricky thing. Um, yeah. There's, there's the tricky part. I think Davidson would say you've got so many beliefs that the beliefs that are feeding into whether you're going to burn a witch is a tiny fraction of your whole belief system. And I feel that's a little bit like glass half empty, glass half full. Because if I'm the witch, I'm thinking like, that's a pretty important <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> that's pretty important. Oh, sure. Well, but Davidson would um, never say that you have to be mostly right about witches. But I'm saying in some sense, most of what we believe is right. But if like, I feel like I could, from a, a kind of a more anxious, nervous standpoint, be like, well, if I think Zeus created the world yeah. and there's witches everywhere and oracles, then what I think about salt and pepper is pretty different than what Davidson thinks about salt and pepper, because I think salt is a ah. manifestation of uh, of the witch. Uh, salt <laughs> is a great way of stopping witches, and, and pepper is from, you know, Pazuzu, the god of pepper. <laughs> you know, like, it well, seems like the crazy person is a little bit crazy in all things. And, and I'm, I'm being a little bit ethnocentric by sliding so quickly between the person from a, another culture and the crazy person. But let's be honest and just sort of wonder, like, 
Could the things that we believe be so deeply cockeyed that externalism is going to be bad news for us because we're going to think that it's all mostly true? So Descartes was approaching this question from this first person point of view, like, what can I know? Mm. Do I know this? Do I know that? And that left room for like, maybe I don't know anything. Davidson, I think the crux of his argument is that he takes a resolutely third person approach to this. So the question is, I've got to ascribe beliefs to this person. And the argument really is, if I wind up interpreting his actions and his words such that most of the beliefs, just 51%, are false, that's as much reason to think I'm ascribing the wrong beliefs as to think that those are his beliefs, her beliefs, and they're mostly false. That's the really crux of his argument, is that you can never be justified in ascribing the beliefs if they're mostly false. You have to ascribe beliefs so that they mostly come out to be true in order to be ascribing beliefs. But it's a purely third-person approach, and I think that's what right. allows him to make draw that conclusion. So if I'm worried... I mean, this is a slightly caricatured version of my mom because she became a high school teacher. But she did, I think, decide not to become a doctor because of internalized misogyny. Mm -hmm. So I'm my mom and I'm mm -hmm. worried that maybe my head is full of um, nonsense yeah. about the roles of men and women. It's not too helpful for me to think, well, another person ascribing beliefs to me would have to assume that most of what I think is right. It's not going right? to be any help at all. Yeah, <laughs> it's no help at all. <laughs> That's for um, sure. So, yeah. how does it help Descartes? Because isn't Descartes just asking a generalized question of my mom's question? Oh, uh, maybe my head is full of nonsense being taught to me by like foolish teachers and stuff like that. I think there's a big question about what is a belief and what isn't. Uh, like, I think to the point you've got a belief where you can say it to yourself or write it down or articulate it. You've probably got, in principle, some reason to wonder whether it's right or not. Um, you've got to be able to doubt it in some way. But then it's a question of, like, how much of our lives is constituted by belief or believing something? And then I think there's a kind of limit underneath which, as it were, uh, it's not really beliefs that are at stake. I mean, do I believe that there's a world? Well, okay, but but like Keanu Reeves' character in The Matrix, yeah. Neo. Mm. He's got a body mm -hmm. and he's in a world, yeah. but his body is floating in a tank right. and his world is controlled by evil computers. Yeah. And he thinks he's walking down the street in Seattle uh, in the 1990s. So his beliefs are radically incorrect. Yeah. And should we be terrified by that? Should we be terrified by the fear that our beliefs are radically incorrect and that we might as well, for all we know, yeah. be floating in some weird gunky computers tank of goo and not really be in, uh, well, you're in New York yeah. and I'm in L.A. in the 21st century? Like, yeah. should we be worried about that? Well, I don't think there's any way to say a priori or in principle that that's impossible. So go back to the Davidsonian thing, which you're, you're right, isn't much consolation from the first person point of view. I think there's a question about if what you're seeing is his body floating in a tank and there's electrodes going into it or whatever. Um, how could we ever actually be in a position to figure out what most of his beliefs were? Maybe we wouldn't be able to. But you're right. That's no help to him from his point of view. So from his point of view, then I think, yeah, I don't know why it would be impossible that somebody could be in a totally delusional sort of conscious state that had very little connection with the actual physical reality, I think actually there's probably real-life cases that are not too far from that. I mean, I've read cases which are really disturbing about people who were in some kind of coma, and then they came out of it, and they were recalling their experience of it. And this woman was saying she had the experience that she was stuck in a wall, and she couldn't get out of the wall. And then when her boyfriend was actually speaking to her, she had the experience that he was reaching into the wall and trying to pull her out of the wall. I mean, it's very disturbing disconnection from reality. So I will grant to the simulation kind of skeptics that there's nothing in principle impossible about this. There are real life cases where people are in altered states uh, that depart radically from reality and it's very scary right and there are plenty of people who are in kind of like um they think the most important thing in their in the world is to score cocaine and take cocaine uh -huh. so they're yeah. this sort of cocaine matrix yeah. where they think the most thing important thing is cocaine 
but it's I would say it's not. I see. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And you can be radically and, wrong. And then there's people who are terrified. They think they can't go out into the street mm. or everybody's going to be looking at them. Yeah. But they're wrong. So there are people who are in a in a hole. Like Descartes was worried about what if he was being misled by an evil demon, right? And uh, and the people who worried about the simulation and David Chalmers and so forth. What if we're being misled by um, alien scientists? But we could be being misled by our own brains, uh, our society, um, our early childhood upbringing. Right? That's possible. It's not impossible. But here's another question to ask the skeptic. Right. Yeah. Based on what we know about these kinds of deviant, delusory experiences, they're all marginal. They're all mm -hmm. dreaming, maybe comas, maybe drug addiction, psychosis, mental illness. These are all marginal cases that, again, make sense to us as exceptions to something, to the rule. Right. So what are the chances? Oh, I think you have a counterexample. Uh -huh. OK. Like we get in our we're Sherman and Mr. Peabody, like we get into our Wayback Machine and we get out in uh, the war between Cortez and the Aztecs. Uh -huh. And on one side, there's a bunch of people who think you need to get all these Aztecs to to take the Eucharist or they're all going to go to hell. Yeah. And on the other side, you've got these people who think, uh, and I'm caricaturing the Aztecs. I actually don't sure, know too sure, much sure. about them. But you need to kill these people in order to make the crops grow. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> about We're that. right. About that We're stuff. The marginal, yes. We're the marginal ones. They're the mainstream culture. Yeah. Like, if <laughs> let's say somebody created a, um, a virus that targeted people who were sane. And so all the same people died. Um, and now the majority of people would believe crazy well, things. Well, if they're really so, crazy, they're going to be pretty dysfunctional, and they're probably not going to keep a culture going very efficiently. But maybe they're pretty dysfunctional. Yeah, and well, how long do they need to keep the culture going to satisfy you? Uh, a year? Well, a hundred years? A thousand years? <laughs> so my point is that in order to keep a culture going or just to carry on with daily life, you have to have a vast background of ordinary common sense, like you let go of something and it falls. Or, oh, but hang on a yeah, second, Taylor. Yeah. Maybe, maybe certain like maybe the slaves should listen to the masters is better at keeping the culture going than oh. uh, people should pursue their own dreams. No, you, well, but it's but still again, not great. Oh, uh, okay. We're taking another break. We're going to take a little break, okay. but, but I, I came up with a pretty cool <laughs> counterexample. So let's see how Taylor responds after this break. <laughs> okay, we're back from the break. So, so yeah. uh, like, I'm worried about this notion that uh, true equals what keeps a culture going. Well, because I, I feel like quite say evil that, <laughs> repressive beliefs could keep a culture of going. Course. And I don't want to say they're true. No, of course, of course. But what I mean is there's the kinds of deviations from reality and illusions and disagreements between cultures, especially cultures that are very alien to each other and often in conflict, uh, is still a thin surface layer that's uh, on top of this vast system of common sense beliefs. This is part of what Davidson's point was, again, too, going back to mm -hmm. Davidson, that you've got to believe uh, that when you let go of something, it falls, that the sun comes up in the morning, that you have to eat to keep living, that when you take in a breath, you'll have a you know something to breathe in, uh, that you can't breathe underwater, uh, how babies are made, and um, you know what makes somebody angry. And I mean, there's a vast shared common sense across cultures because of basically, I mean, shared human nature. And this is why there's some hope about culture clashes, because it's not really like encountering aliens from a completely different planet or different reality. There's all kinds of common human needs. And so all the examples you're talking about, I think, are still in the realm of ordinary level skepticism, which it's good to have, because you should, when you encounter an alien culture... And this is what a lot of the French um, Enlightenment philosophers were sort of coming to understand, Montesquieu and others, that it really should make you reflect on your own culture and your own beliefs and values, because maybe you've got it wrong about a lot of stuff. But it shouldn't make you think, maybe I don't have a body. Okay. And the simulation stuff is philosophical skepticism, because it's not really scientific. Uh -huh. It's based on science only in a trivial, superficial way. People invoke stuff about the brain, but we don't know how the brain works. And everything we know about how these deviant experiences happen is that they're 
they're very marginal and they're very easily detected. And the idea that there could be a whole world sustained as an illusion without being detected, I think, goes completely against everything we know about psychotic, delusional, illusory sort of states. They're always um, exceptional and unstable. So so one thing to say to the skeptic is um, uh, you have to forget everything we actually know about mental representation and the brain and consciousness in order to get this hypothesis going. So even if I admit to them that like the hypothesis is not obviously false, that we're like Neo and reality deviates radically from everything we know about reality, it's not impossible, but the chances of it are minuscule. I mean, the chances of it are so small as to make it a kind of idle hypothesis. That's why I said before, I think a lot of this discussion among philosophers is sort of frivolous. Well, because but, 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 it's really completely disconnected from everything we actually know about ordinary reality and our experience and even how the brain and the mind work. Right. Well, but if you grant, if you grant the skeptic his claim, it's what we falsely believe we know about how the brain and the mind work. I, look, you could you could have all this conversation, Taylor, and you could wake up, and it turns out that you dreamed it, <laughs> and and we have yet to do the podcast, right? Well, um, I'm again, I push back on that because everything I have ever experienced about dreams and illusions, about dreaming and so on, absolutely rule out this being a dream. You know, the dream argument, which is. I mean, and Zhuangzi as well as Descartes, right? Yes, I mean, yes. It wasn't Zhuangzi the one who said uh, Zhuangzi woke up and was dream had dreamed he was a butterfly, but then didn't know if he was Zhuangzi dreaming he was a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming that he was Zhuangzi. Right. Or, or I've got another good one, is that yeah. somebody uh, said to uh, the god Vishnu, can you teach me the nature of your maya, of your illusory capacity for creating universes? And mm-hmm. uh, Vishnu said, uh, sure. Um, and dip your face in this basin of water. So the man dipped his face in the basin of water, and he was a king of a massive kingdom. And uh, he went home to his wife, and he said, I had this weird experience with Vishnu. He said, you can teach me the nature of reality. And, and for a while, I thought I was whatever, some other guy, but I guess it was a dream. And she says, okay, I love you. Uh, and they made love, and they had a prince, and, they, and that prince grew up, and they conquered many territories. And then many years later, when this conversation had long since left his mind, he became not just a king, but an emperor. But then another empire formed a collusion with one of his best generals, uh, and they invaded, and um, his uh, palace was burned down, and and he had lost his family, and he went fleeing on a horse, and then the horse died, and then he was fleeing on foot through the forest, and he, he fell asleep, and he woke up, and he saw the burning embers of his whole empire and he went running and running and and they were chasing him uh on horseback and they were sending spears and arrows and it looked like he was up against it and he was he needed to cross this mountain stream and he crossed the mountain stream and for a second his head went beneath the surface of the water and then he picked Uh, his head up and he was back with vishnu he had just uh, put his face in the basin and vishnu was like uh, that's the nature uh, of my reality that's what maya (laughs) is wow Wait, go Vishnu. Right. That was quite, um, a, quite a feat. So, yeah. so Vishnu could yeah. do that, okay. couldn't he? Couldn't this whole world be uh, the dream of Vishnu or, or the dream of Zhuangzi? I, I got so excited by my own uh, rhetoric, I, I forgot what <laughs> yeah, we were talking got, about. You almost also sort of wrong-footed me. You sort of got me to the point of thinking of, hey, yeah. What if it is? A, what if it is? A, That's such a compelling story. Vishnu. So here's, here's, the, here's my question to you. Have you ever had a dream like that? Not that long. No. Right. No. Exactly. No, I haven't. Right, exactly. So, in fact, Descartes eventually comes around, once he's no longer interested in sort of defending the skeptical arguments, he comes around to saying, which something that Barclay says and almost everybody comes around to saying, which is that when I'm dreaming, I'm not good at telling the difference between dreaming and waking experience. But when I'm waking, I'm very good at telling Uh the difference between the two of them, right? Because they're not the same. (laughs) And, in fact, your ability to distinguish them is impaired when you're dreaming. 
Bernard Williams has this wonderful example. He, he flew planes, I don't know if it was during World War II or right after, but they used to teach pilots. One sign that you were about to faint and lose consciousness from the G-forces was to look at your fingernails and see if they were blue. And if they're, if they're turning blue, it means you're in danger of not getting enough oxygen to your brain that you might actually pass out. So it's a good warning signal, right? But the problem is when there's not enough oxygen getting to your brain, you forget to look at your fingernails. Uh-huh. So it's like the check is not available to you when you're in the danger state, right? Correct. And so, too, when you're dreaming, you're very bad at telling the difference between dreaming and waking. But when you're waking, you're very good at telling the difference. So they're right. not symmetrical. So right. the dream argument is just not plausible based on actual dreaming experience. And I don't see any reason to generalize the dreaming example to a more general worry that may be as much as this seems real, it could be something like a dream. Well, it's certainly not anything like a dream in my experience. Now, let me add one more wrinkle to this hypothesis, right? See, because if the more plausible you build in the reality simulation into the worry, right? If it's so rich, this reality you're in, that it's got so much detail and depth that you can actually move around in it and live in it and maybe like Vishnu for years, right? And inhabit it. Maybe it's just a world, right? Right. And then what's the point of calling it a simulation? Because it has now achieved the very status according to which we think of it as a reality. So there's a point in the simulation stuff where I lose track of what people even mean by a simulation. Why not just say that there's some further description of reality that involves all this other crazy stuff we have no idea, like a superintelligence kind of structuring everything? I mean, who knows? But as long as what they're structuring is the world we already know and inhabit, and it has the stability we think it does, there's a way in which it isn't a simulation at all. It's just a corner of reality. Right. And I sometimes feel like it's possible that what Zhuangzi is saying, or Vashishta, because that was kind of a retelling of a story from the Yoga Vashishta, what they might mm. be saying is there might be an even more fundamental way of experiencing reality yeah. than the one we have now. Right, right. And, and, and to say it's all an illusion is a little bit of a hyperbolic or exciting way of saying that. Right. But you could say... No, it's not literally an illusion. It's a surface. We live in a world, yeah. but there's more cool ways. There's there's yeah. there's important stuff about the world that we're missing. Maybe that's the way. Well, to say right, it. and I think that's true. You actually. think that's true? I think that's true. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So another way to put it, you could either say it's not an illusion, but it's just a surface appearance. But the other way you could put it, which I think is maybe even better, rather than say it's a surface. Uh, but that's pretty good already. I like to think of our experience of the world as a sliver. Uh-huh. It's a tiny sliver cut into reality based on the kinds of brains and eyes and bodies we happen to have and minds that gives us a tiny sliver of what's actually out there. And that's deeply unsettling, but especially if you think that maybe like quantum mechanics is describing the fundamental underlying structure of reality. It's totally alien to our experience. And yet, and that's unsettling, but I think it's probably right. But that doesn't mean that anything about our experience is wrong or false. It just means we're getting a tiny sliver of the whole rich, deep, complex, ultimately incomprehensible complexity of reality. I think that's probably Mm -hmm. right. You Um, think that's true. But it doesn't really threaten the veracity of our ordinary experience at all. It just says it's only part of a great big picture we're never going to have any real access to. Right. So... um... The blind man and the elephant. Exactly. That's right. Right. Yeah. I think that times a million. If people at home don't know the blind man and the elephant, the idea is um, uh, a number of people were disputing about God. Is there one God? Is there no gods? Are there many gods? And somebody said, well, imagine the blind men who meet the elephant. And one of them who touches the trunk says the elephant is very much like a snake. And one who touches the side says, no, the elephant is very much like a wall. And one who says, who touches the, uh, I, I actually remember all of these. One who touches wow. the ear said it's very much like a fan. Ah, one yeah. who touches the tail said it's very much like a uh, rope. Uh-huh. Anyway, maybe there's a fifth one. Okay. Oh, yeah. One who touches the tusk says the elephant is very like a spear. Um, and they all start fighting. Yeah. But then a, a, a man who, who has sight says, you're not fighting because you're all wrong. You're actually fighting because you're all right. Right, exactly. The elephant is, in fact, depending upon which parts you touch, like a spear, a wall, a snake, a fan, and a rope. Right. Um, and that's, that. I, I kind of like that. Yeah, um, I like it too. But it makes me wonder, um, do you need to assume that there is a a sage who bears the same relationship to us as the... Um, 
the sighted man does to the blind man in the allegory? I would. So my own kind of view is that there's no point of view of the sage who can see all these things. Mm -hmm. But I do very much like the idea that so even granted the sort of simulator sort of hypothesis, suppose there's some entity for whom everything we experience is just a tiny little sort of bubble a phenomenon that's local and not really the, you know, the real story, fine. But it doesn't mean that we're wrong, right? Uh, so we are right. That other point of view could be right. We're all these, got these partial perspectives. So it, it, again, it's not a skeptical hypothesis. Uh, it mm -hmm. preserves the truth of everything we think is, or everything, I would say most of the stuff we think is true. Um, I like that a lot. And uh, um, yeah, so... Yeah, I think the skeptical hypothesis is very unstable and not well sort of it, it's kind of insupportable because the skeptical game often turns out I think the deck is stacked that you have to the burden of proof is on the person who claims we know anything and it seems like there's no burden of proof at all on the person who's coming up with the skeptical arguments because they can invent any crazy scenario and say why not uh, this why not that why not that so it's a blank so, it's a blank so, check and that's not fair. <laughs> okay. So the answer the answer to the question is do we live in a simulation? And the answer is what? Well, I think no, but no. but not not because of any knockdown a priori argument, just be, but rather because there is no good reason to suppose that we do. Yeah, that's, no that's, good reason to think we live in a simulation. That's right. That's what I think. And if you want to believe that there are greater horizons and that we're like blind men uh, touching the elephant, you can, and, and maybe you should. And I think you're probably right. You're probably right about that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. no to brain in the back. Exactly. Yes to a visually disabled person and uh, pachyderm. So if you're worried that we're in the matrix, relax. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> because yeah. we're... Uh, Calm e down. Even if we were, it wouldn't make any difference to anything. Yeah. And, and in effect, you wouldn't be living in the matrix because yeah. you'd be right. And worry everything. about something if you're worried that you're like you're whatever, you're too selfish uh, or you're too intellectually narrow-minded to understand how other people's lives are, take one of them out to lunch. Exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. But yeah. calm down and think about that, but don't get yourself in a metaphysical yeah. fit. Learn some things. Exactly. Learn some things. There you go. Okay, uh, I'm Eric Kaplan. And I'm Taylor Carmen. And you've been listening to Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them. Uh, come by next week. See you then. podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and edited by Taylor Carmen.